0: From the Backburner podcast is sponsored by Birch Barrel. Hey, uh, so I had a neighbor the other day watching me uh, load up my truck, get ready to go fishing, and uh, came out to talk to me. And, and I said, "Hey, would you do you want to go fishing with me?" And he said, "You know what? That's a whole lot of work." He said, "I'd I'd much rather catch fish on uh, uh, my Xbox at home." And uh, so later that day, uh, when I was cooking those fish on the Birch Barrel. Uh he he could smell it and he stopped by and he was a little little bummed that he couldn't uh come out and, and uh go fishing with me at that point. And and I know some of you guys out there are thinking, you know, the birch barrel, you look at it and you go, man, I don't have time for, for live fire cooking and, and all that. And so but honestly, uh it's it's a hundred percent worth it. And and you can find the time and make the time. Uh if you're interested in picking up a birch barrel, visit birchbarrel.com. Uh, you can check out all the, the equipment, all the, the extra things that they have there, and if you want, use my promo code BURNER, B-U-R-N-E-R at checkout for a 10% discount. Hey everyone, welcome back to From the Backburner Podcast. My name is Jonathan O'Dell. Um, I uh, have kind of a, an interesting podcast today. Um, a, a little different, but uh, I, I, it was kind of a topic and subject I, I really wanted to dig into today and, and learn a little bit more myself. Um, so you might remember last year, um, still during the, the middle of the pandemic that, uh, Grand Canyon National Park, um, was kind of a, a long time coming, but, but Grand Canyon National Park held a bison cull, um, that, uh, occurred and, and it stirred up a lot of feelings and emotions. I saw a lot of stuff online and, and, uh, Actually, uh, forty-five thousand people applied for the opportunity to to be one of the the folks that called this. Uh, and interestingly, a, f- a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, he was one of the lucky few uh, who who drew that. And I said, "Man, you know, you gotta you gotta come on the podcast and talk about it," because he had actually um, drawn a, a bison hunt tag a few years earlier uh, on the Kaibab, which is on the north side of Grand Canyon National Park, and and harvested a, a bison and and uh, but he he was able to, to go out on this call. I said, man, I'd, I'd really love your input on, uh, you know, kind of comparing and contrasting, you know, these, these two different experiences you had kind of in the same place. And he's, uh, he's a little bit microphone shy. And, and so he, uh, he said, he said, man, I, I, I don't know if I could do it, but he said, you know who you should talk to? He said, you should talk to, uh, the woman at the National Park Service who helped me out, which is uh, who I invited on today, uh, Miranda, and uh, um, she actually is joined by another uh, partner within the National for- or National Park Service, which is Dan. So, uh, welcome, please welcome Miranda and Dan. Thanks. Thanks for having Hi. us. Hi.
2: Yeah.
0: Good. Um, so, let's let's just start off, Miranda, if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling us who you are, what you do with the park, and all that.
2: Yeah, so I'm Miranda Terwilliger. I'm a wildlife biologist here at Grand Canyon, and I am also the project manager for the Bison Reduction Project. So, all of the bison stuff that's happened over since 2017, I've been sort of taking the lead on. But I do a lot of other things with wildlife too. So, uh, but that's obviously what I'm here to discuss today.
1: Very cool. And Dan? uh yeah thanks uh my name is dan ryan i'm an invasive wildlife biologist um and i i'm actually not at Granite Canyon. i work at pinnacles national park which is out in california um but uh you know my my focus is on removal of invasive wildlife um species um, so we did a lot of pig removal out of pinnacles um with that um i you know we used a lot of non lead ammo for that project um and with uh with condors and other species that we have at pinnacles i kind of became a a subject matter expert i guess in uh in the ammunition and how we use it and all of that um and when grand canyon uh had this bison project going on um we knew that we wanted in the park service to use non-lead ammunition for for this and uh because my work that i'd done at pinnacles i was brought in to to help with the bison project and uh, work with miranda on this
0: yeah yeah certainly i know uh there's kind of been a voluntary uh, lead reduction effort uh, going on on the on the Kaibab on the north side of the Grand Canyon there, with Kaibab National Forest and, and deer hunts and and everything there just to to help protect the California condors expansion through through that area too. So, very very cool. Well, so for those of you listeners out there who aren't familiar um, with Grand Canyon uh, or its history. Um, Aside from the the river channel cutting this very deep gorge through the through the the elevated uh, lands there, um, it, it, there's really kind of a cool history that's a bit unique in comparison to a lot of the other national parks around the country. And uh, I'm I'm going to have Marin and Dan maybe help me out a little bit on this. But if you if you go back in history, um, the Grand Canyon actually started out as a national forest. Uh, preserve before the national park or the national park or the national forest system was even established. Uh, but you kind of go back into 1893, Arizona was still a territory at the time and, and uh, they, they carved out this, uh, who was it? President Harrison at the time? I yeah, think. Yeah. So in- um,
2: it was actually a national game unit, but under Theodore Roosevelt, but both what is the national forest and the national park, he created as a, a, a game preserve, At the time, in uh, around 1908, 1900s, Um, and that area includes the area where House Rock is right now. Um, And then in 1916, uh, the Grand Canyon was formed and separated out, and that's when then, then a little bit later, a couple years later, Kaibab National Forest came to be.
0: Yeah. And and it's I think it's kind of unique um you know about what you said a lot of folks may not be aware but uh there Teddy Roosevelt established four different uh national game preserves around the country. Now these were different than the uh bird preserves which eventually you know became part of the the Fish and Wildlife Services um wildlife refuge system and you know some other ones but there was there was this actual he he used the language national game preserve because it established uh some really some niceties about you know how special these areas were for game and uh he only created four uh and i think those were the only four national game preserves ever created but Three of them, uh, I know there's one in North Dakota, one in Oklahoma, um, and, and since that time, they've actually been converted to, to national parks um, at that point. But the Kaibab, or the, the Grand Canyon uh, Preserve Game Preserve, was... Really kind of established as as a special area because of the mule deer there, because of the unique squirrel there. Um, Teddy Roosevelt visited that area back in like 1903 and and was just kind of awestruck um, by the whole place and just couldn't believe how much wildlife was running around and uh, wanted to to kind of set it aside and protect it. But Yeah, then later the Grand Canyon National Park came about. So so it's it's kind of a little strange. You've got a, a, a national park that's kind of bounded on the north and south side by national forest um (laughs) it's almost kind of kind of boxed in in a way isn't it
2: um yeah i mean you could say we're kind of cut out of the national forest but on you know on our western edge we're surrounded by uh tribal lands as well so um i don't know i'm not sure that that is totally unique but i think it is unique that it's the same forest on both sides
0: right Yeah. yeah um and always i What's interesting is I, I spend a lot of time on the on the north side, um, because right up against the national park boundary there on the forest is is some pretty good blue grouse habitat and and uh, hunting squirrels over there and and things like that. So it's I get a, a chance to see uh, a lot of that and and hunt the area actually where the bison. Um, we're out near Saddle Mountain Wilderness, and and a lot of that. I see a lot of the wallows and the drinkers, and and all that, and the bison coming through. I've I run into them a few times when I'm up there. So, but let's uh, so as we kind of go through that history, um, bison weren't originally there, correct?
2: Ah, uh, that's complicated, honestly. <laughs> um, yes, that's what a lot of people will say. I will tell you that there is a what's co- sort of considered the original bison range map was created in the uh late 1800s um i'm trying to think of the gentleman's name who created this map um and for it's right up on my wall actually um it does not show arizona as being a place that has bison um that's being said um So Van Van Kadish published this map in 1899, which is when all of the great bison herds were already hugely reduced and almost at zero, right? Uh, He was a white German man. Uh, It's not clear whether he was actually ever in the country. He was gathering information probably primarily from people who had, were bison hunters and from the railroads. They weren't talking to tribes and if they had, the tribes might've lied to them. Um, So I think it's a great estimate of where bison were, but I would not say that this is the end all be all because in 1899, our uh, understanding of the topography of the West was pretty out of whack. I know for example, that the San Francisco peaks at that time were mapped in a totally different location than where they are. (laughs) Um, So what I would say is bison are native to North America. I would, it's possible and probable that they sometimes spent time on the Kaibab Plateau. They were probably never there in large numbers. They were probably never there for long periods of time. We were either on the edge of their range or just outside of it. But whether they were ever here in large numbers, I mean, whether they were here, we will never know. The archeological evidence is not clear. We know that the tribes who are here may not consider themselves bison people. They're corn people or various other things, but bison are still important to them spiritually and culturally, whether that was because they occasionally hunted them themselves or because they had nearby trading partners who were able to hunt them is not clear. Um, And it will never be clear because we were not here when bison were at their full extent. We don't have that data. Um, So, personally, I think it's kind of a moot point. They are native to North America. They're an animal that we almost entirely wiped out. And now in some places they're having success.
0: Sure. And the and,
2: and, plateau happens to be one of them.
0: <laughs> and, you know, and for most folks, I mean, obviously the the bison, the image of bison, you know, comes from like the plains and and you know out in the, the the vast prairie expanse that we see but you know when we talk about this area um we're talking about you know house rock probably you know right around 5,000 foot elevation to up on top of of uh the kaibab i mean up nine nine thousand ten thousand feet in a in a few areas so this is this is not you know your your typical traditional uh bison you know feeding out on the grassy plains of of you know the midwest right
2: Yeah, and you know, it's not the only one like that. In the southwest, there's the Henry Mountain herd, there's the herd in Great Sand Dunes. These are all high-altitude herds, and our herd origin is different. Um, It comes from Mexico. Monterey, New Mexico, came from the entire opposite edge of almost all of our other great conservation herds, which came from the Great Plains. So yeah, it's not where people consider it as typical habitat. But if you look at that range map, it's clear that they covered almost the entire United States. People don't think of Buffalo, New York as bison habitat either, but bison were there. That's why it's called Buffalo, New York.
0: Well, it just it just kind of wanted to give people a, a sense of you know this this habitat we're talking about. I mean, it's it's pretty rugged, yeah. rough, mountainous, you know, steep in a lot of places. Um, you know, cl- gets clear up into the into the spruce fir elevations and and uh, uh, really really kind of an interesting thing. So let's actually let's talk about the um, uh, the connection with uh, with Buffalo Jones um, okay. and, and that kind of starting.
2: Yeah. So in 1905, Buffalo Jones was invited by his friend Theodore Roosevelt to come out and be a game manager, essentially, for the game preserve. And he brought 56 uh, bison that he scoured from these others, again, New Mexico, um, western panhandle of Texas, some very dry areas. um, And he brought a bunch of cattle as well. And as Almost everybody who tried to save the bison herds, he had been a bison hunter who realized that they were disappearing. And they all thought, Hey, you know how we're gonna make these bison valuable and people wanna keep them? We're gonna make a like the super cow. And so we're gonna breed them with cattle. It failed everywhere. He went bankrupt. Uh, essentially, and anything that uh, remotely survived that was sort of a crossbreed, he took with him and he just abandoned the bison, at which point when the state came into being, the state took over the remaining bison herd.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's cool. I actually um, learned that uh, uh, Buffalo Jones was the first game warden of Yellowstone National Park. Um, so kind of a, kind of a cool other, other little connection there on, on the side of it. So I know he's, he's definitely considered one of the the grandfather's preservers. of
2: bison. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: he, he definitely was working in that direction to, to saving bison across the, the landscape. So, so anyway, that's how the bison get here. And been here for a long time, uh, managed by the state, and, and they pretty much didn't want to stay there on the House Rock area and like to hike up in the mountains and through the trees and live sometimes on the forest and on the park and just kind of exist there, right?
2: Yeah, so the bi- when the state had the bison, they primarily kept them on an area called House Rock Valley, which... For those of you who aren't familiar with that area, that's sort of the lowland area just above the Colorado River between the Vermilion Cliffs and the Kaibab Plateau. And it's very dry, sagebrushy desert. Um, Those animals were always kept around 100 animals at that point. Um, The state has a grazing lease from the Forest Service that's in their enabling legislation for the bison because of its unique status as a game preserve. Somewhere around... um, The 1990s, there were some changes in management at House Rock. And as a result, uh, some fences started to fail um, and they weren't repaired. And there was a fire that went through there that took a bunch out. And I think, uh, you know, the bison could smell and see the water on the Kaibab Plateau. So as soon as they found an opportunity to, they escaped up there. And for quite a while, they went back and forth. Um, They would go back down to House Rock to calve. And honestly, um, I think it's hunting pressure that kept them from returning at some point. So um, as of 2005, we stopped having bison return um, to House Rock Valley and stayed on the Kaibab Plateau. Um, You know, the... They started to grow really high because they were mostly staying in the park and they're not huntable there. They occasionally go off the park boundaries at this current time, maybe up to five miles over the boundary. But uh, there's a pretty intensive harvest over there and it's there's usually hunters there about every quarter mile right along the boundary and the bison have kind of learned that that's not a safe place to go. So we started having the population just exponentially grow um we were getting around 600 to 800 and our model estimates were saying that we're going to get 1500 if we didn't take action soon and it was clear to everybody i think who manages them whether it's the forest service the state or us and also tribes um that there was quite a bit of damage being done by that level of grazing from animals and so we all agreed that we really need to reduce the herd some and bring that size down
0: Now, and that's, I think that's, it's a really important point because, um, one of the, the, one of the things about this is, is, you know, a, a bison for a hunter is really kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, you know, if, if, if that, if you, if you get one, um, kind of regardless of, of where you're at, I think, in this country. And so, uh, you know, there's a vested interest by hunters, but um, at the same time, you're also talking about uh, a lot of stakeholder uh, interest and in, in investment from national park, national forests, states, tribes. Um, you know, the the bison is, is a uh, considered a, a very important animal to a lot of the, the First Nations um you know, across the, the country. Um, and so there there was a lot of interest and in, and in, in focus on, um, you know, what to do about this before getting to 2021 um, in terms of a call, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I think I had the year wrong. It was 2009 when they stopped going back to the herd. But yeah, I mean, the, I think all these partners were in conversation for at least 10 years before we were able to reach a compromise. And I think part of it was that We all the different interest groups and agencies have had at the time very different end goals for long-term management. And I think finally we got a superintendent who was just like, let's focus on a short-term goal because we all know there's too many bison. So let's get it to an agreed population size and then get work on the science so that we can answer these other questions that we don't currently agree on. And so that's um, that environmental assessment for the short-term reduction was signed late, almost like November, December of 2017. All right. I mean, yeah.
0: Now the the. The purpose in going with a cull, you know, for for listeners out there who aren't familiar, um, obviously there isn't hunting on our national parks um, in a, in a traditional sense. Uh, you you almost have to think of a cull as more like the snow goose conservation seasons that occur in the spring um, over in the the middle and, and eastern parts of the country, where it's it's not. Uh, under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, it's not a hunting season. It's This is about a, a conservation tool or a, a conservation measure to, to kind of help control populations. Um, that's why in those spring seasons, there's uh, really different regulations um, for hunters. You know, a lot of the things that are illegal during uh, the standard hunting season, like electronic calls and plugs in your shotguns and all that stuff, that kind of goes out the window to enable hunters um, to be able to uh, harvest those now. In, in that particular instance, they're they're using hunters as that measure, and in this case, this was this needed to be reined in a little bit more tightly and controlled, right?
2: Yeah. So it, it's actually there are national park units where you can hunt. Oh, there are. the interesting thing about the national parks is that each one of them has unique laws and regulations depending on why it was created. So it, what what those rules are called is the enabling legislation that Congress passes. Grand Canyon, it's very specifically spelled out that hunting is not allowed. But, for example, there is a deer hunt, or an elk, it's an elk hunt, in Grand Teton National Park. That yeah. is part of their enabling legislation. So that's different. And Congress is the only one who can change an enabling legislation and authorize it. But we know it's completely not authorized in Grand Canyon National Park. However, the National Park Service is allowed to cull any... And culling is the destruction of animals for the purposes of resource protection um, and for primarily conservation purposes, as you said. There's other things that matter that differentiate it between a hunt and a cull. Part of it is manner. So culling has to be conducted under controlled circumstances and under the direction and supervision of park service personnel, whereas hunting is obviously at the hunter's discretion and it has elements of fair chase. Um, There were Things that we did that was definitely not fair chase, like we had radio collars on animals so and satellite collars, so we had Judas animals that we used to help locate animals that would never be allowed in a hunt. The disposition of an animal that's killed is also important in differentiating between a hunt and a cull. And when you're a hunter, obviously you choose the animal, you shoot it, you get to keep all of it. So when you're culling it, part of, and this is based on court, settled law um it, that has been happened when other parks the person who kills that animal is not necessarily keeping the parts from or the meat from the animal they killed now that doesn't mean they can't keep some but it's not necessarily the one they killed and they're sort of so that those are some of the sideboards and restrictions under which we operated for this coal because we do have a narrow legal line that we had to walk to make sure that we were doing what we are allowed to do legally, because as you know, a lot of people are very interested in this, both very excited about it and very, and then there was a whole group that was very against this. And so we knew that we were, you know, there's always the possibility of lawsuits and we wanted to be able to say, yes, we made this as cut and dried as possible.
0: Right. No, that's like I'd mentioned earlier. I mean, it was, it was 45,000 people. Who applied yeah. for this? Right, over forty-five
2: thousand. Forty-five, people.
0: <laughs> and how many?
2: Forty-five thousand and forty. <laughs> nice.
0: Well, and how many? How many? How many actual shooters' colors were you going to have? And then you had like a, a backup list.
2: So we had, yeah. So there were twelve volunteer positions mm-hmm. for which these greater than forty-five thousand people applied for, and then we asked every uh, volunteer that we selected to bring along with them four or five support volunteers, which were there mo- there mostly to help butcher the animal and haul them out of the wilderness. So, you know, most of the North Rim Park side is eligible wilderness, which means we can't use motorized transport to pull them out. And if anybody has hunted a bison, you know, they're, they're big. It's a lot of work to get them out, right? So we knew we were carrying them out on our backs. So we wanted the additional... Um, folks to show up so they could help us get that meat out of there in a reasonable time manner so that it wouldn't spoil.
0: Sure. Now were you looking at removing um, the entire carcass? Um, or like I mean was there I, I know you talked about you know just the meat and stuff, but were there you know aspects such as the skull or the hide that that maybe tribes were asking for, you know to be donated? I, I know that happens a lot. you know, when I go to the the annual waterfowl wing bee, hunters submit a lot of wings. And uh, the tribe, various tribes around the country, uh, are sent these wings for ceremonial reasons and and religious reasons, things like that. Um, Is that what happened here?
2: Yeah, so tribes definitely were interested in those. And uh, we kind of left it up to the volunteers to decide what they wanted to haul out. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they did bring it all out. We did allow um, then those volunteers to keep some parts, if they chose, or to donate as they chose. So most of them actually did choose to donate to our tribes. Um, again, because bison have been so scarce for so long, um, a lot of our tribes their their spiritual and uh, cultural tools that are made out of bison have completely worn out. So there's definitely a huge amount of uh, request and desire for those parts, way more than we could ever possibly um accommodate but uh we did honor that where we could okay
1: just well, to jump in there to um a number of the volunteers brought parts out that they maybe wouldn't have brought out normally you know stuff that uh you know as, as a hunter you would have left in the field um certain viscera or the tail or, or the feet but once they heard that these were requested by tribes uh you know the volunteers were willing to pack extra stuff out of the wilderness. You know, like, hey, oh yeah, of course I'm going to put this on my back. Somebody wants this. Somebody's going to use it. I'm not going to leave it in the field. Um, so it was it was really great to uh, to work with volunteers like that that you know really wanted to support the tribes and and um, were just so passionate about it. So
0: yeah, very
2: yeah, very and, cool. And we got lists from the traditionally associated tribes of sort of the parts they were most interested in, kind of right. ranked, so that we could share that with the volunteers and they could understand a little bit of why they were, why and what was of interest to them.
0: Sure. So Dan, let me, let me switch over to you for a minute. So at what point, so you, you kind of became the subject matter expert on, on (laughs) non-lead and (laughs) this call going on over in, in, Grand Canyon, um, at what point were you kind of brought into this discussion? Like, hey, you're gonna you're gonna need to be there and and extol the the virtues of of non lead ammunition and and you know maybe help these guys kind of figure it out because you know I think for for probably your volunteers you know they were gonna need a little bit of practice time if they weren't used to shooting uh, a different ammo through their gun or you know seeing how it zeroed that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah yeah that's that's exactly it um so i was i was brought in pretty early um at least from my perspective pretty early in the process um at least a, a year ahead of time um with uh with grand canyon and part of that is because of what i had been doing at pinnacles uh, what i've been doing within the park service uh other parks that also have uh volunteer calls going on uh, i've worked with those um and and you know take a step back um you know why why not why do we even care about this um, you know, uh, condors often are brought up as as this um, you know thing that's tied to non lead, and certainly condors were an indicator. They were that indicator species for us that that sort of brought to light the issues of lead poisoning for scavengers uh, because of the way lead bullets fragment when they hit tissue, um, and you've got scavengers that are getting into the carcasses. Um, condors, we we just we had all of them tagged once that population. Was put back into the wild, uh, which meant that we got a lot of necropsies back on them, and so we could see, oh wow, you know, we really are seeing this this lead issue with these birds. But it was, it's not just condors. It was also this moment of, well, they're not the only scavengers out there. You know, what else is getting lead through this process? Well, it turns out everything. Um, you know, this is we see the same thing of bald eagles, golden eagles, turkey vultures, ravens. Uh, we just don't have every. Single one of those animals tagged the way we do with condors. So condors were just an indicator. Um, so once the Park Service really sees, you know, this, um, you know, the scavenger issue, um, we do, we, you know, we want to do something about it. Right? That's that's who we are as the Park Service. Um, you know, uh, working towards these healthier ecosystems. Um, And so when I started working at Pinnacles with the the pig removal project, um, you know, we knew that we wanted to use non-lead ammunition um, for that process uh, because we knew that we didn't want to have an impact on our scavengers. So I'm shooting a lot of non-lead, you know, on this pig project. Uh, We removed, you know, over 300 hogs. Um, You know, okay, I've got all this experience with it now. What do we do with that? Um, And so the next step was sort of, well, you know, who, who else can use this information? It's, it's our neighbors, our hunters, our ranchers that are in our local communities, uh, you know, that can help our local population. Uh, well, let's take that, expand it, make it even bigger. Um, anytime we can talk to a hunter or rancher about switching to non-lead, and having them be somebody who's, you know, taking a a really important role in protection of non-target species when they're hunting. Um, you know, that's a good thing. You know, that means they're, they're a partner in this. Um, And so the NPS also, you know, knowing that we wanted to to have this message, we're talking to hunters, we're talking to ranchers, doesn't do us much good to just talk about this. We've got to do it ourselves. Um, And so the NPS uh, has policies that were put into place that we would also use non-lead ammunition for all of our wildlife um, management within the Park Service. So if we're doing if we're doing dispatch of an injured animal, you know, it doesn't matter um, if it's native species, non native species, whatever. If we're shooting an animal in the Park Service, we're using non lead ammunition. And part of that policy also included volunteers. So it's staff, contractors, volunteers, anybody who's putting an animal down. Um, uh, you know, also needs to be using non-lead. Um, my background as a hunter myself, um, as as well as the experience that I've had with uh, these removal programs, just kind of put me into a place where I was doing a lot of this outreach throughout the park service um, at different parks, not just mine at Pinnacles. Um, and Grand Canyon, you know, heard about this um, and um, felt that maybe I could be that resource for these volunteers, because just as you said, we've got volunteers coming in and We had, you know, thousands of applicants, as you know. So we had people from all over the country uh, coming in for this Grand Canyon project. This isn't just, you know, local folks in Arizona, Utah. We had folks from all over the country. Um, So if you're in California, maybe you've heard this non-LED message a little bit more just because of um, how long we've been working it there. Arizona, maybe you've heard it before. If you're coming out of Minnesota, Tennessee, something like that, maybe that non-LED ammunition message hasn't been um, quite as prevalent in your Uh, community. So like you said, maybe you've never used this before. Um, and So we really wanted to make sure that as we were bringing these volunteers in, we were giving them every tool we could to help make sure that they would be successful in the field. Um, And so we um, offered uh, um, a number of uh, you know, documents on, Hey, here's all the ammunition that's non-lead available for your cartridge. So you can go through these, pick which one might work for you. Okay. But if you don't know how to pick one, uh, you know, that's our, our something we can help with too. We've, we've played with all of this stuff. Um, uh, we've tested almost all of these different ammunition types. Um, so documents on, uh, FAQs for ammo, firearms, um, And then just myself as a resource, you know, here's my email, give me a shout, uh, you know, call me up, tell me what you've been using. Is it giving you problems? Here's what we can do. Um, and then we also offered a training for all of our selected volunteers, uh, to go through and the training went through, you know, why are you being asked to use non-lead, um, you know, including the policies, uh, lead poisoning and scavengers, how does lead fragment, uh, and then as well as getting into how do you make that switch, um, you know for your rifle um your particular rifle how do you make the bullet choice you know the materials the designs of these different bullets the ballistics internal ballistics external ballistics terminal ballistics uh you know velocity range all of this stuff let's get into the technical details for you because again we want you to show up on day one ready to rock we want you to be super confident in what you've uh, chosen to use um and be able to have that confidence when you go into the field uh, to be ready to go um so when we did you know obviously you have to qualify as well you don't just get selected and you get to walk off into the woods. you had to go through a firearms qualification uh, course, and, you know, again, we want it to be real life. Um, you're shooting in any position, um, you know, all of these types of things. But again, we wanted those folks to be, once they got to that qualification, that they've had the time, they've had the knowledge, they've had the experience with that non-lead ammo so that they can be successful from day one, not just here you go, go out there and hope it works for you this time. You've never shot it before. Um, it's a different material. It's, it's, you know, any, any new projectile is going to shoot differently. So um, we just wanted to set them up for success really.
0: Right now where I I would certainly love it. Um, I, I would assume you probably had some uh, partners who've come alongside you with this, this non led yeah. kind of oh, yeah. work. If, if you have, I mean, yeah. if you want to <laughs> yeah. give a shout out to any of those folks, I mean, the North American you know, non-lead yep. partnership, uh, any of the manufacturers, uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, please absolutely, you know, give a shout out to those <laughs> folks because they do well, a, a, a lion's share of some work, so.
2: Yeah, and I would say that, like, you know, part of why we brought Dan's, Grand Canyon's had the condors and we've worked closely with the Peregrine Fund and the state of Arizona and the state of Utah working on voluntary, tra- you know, the non-lead use, um, and so we knew that he had great educational abilities for teaching hunters. I mean, I'm a hunter too. One of the things that I think that gets missed is that that lead is you and your family are ingesting too. Um, And it does affect us, right? So uh, the North American non-lead partnership is huge. And one of the things that Dan also had to help with is really you know, we all know that there's been an ammo scarcity Well, and that's hit the non-lead harder. And we were doing this in the middle of that scarcity. So a lot, uh, Dan had to help people find non-lead too. Right. <laughs> but go ahead and give your, sh- any other shout outs, Dan, to manufacturers who've really put out some good non-lead.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, you know, yeah, you talked about the shortage, right? We all, we, we've all felt that um, uh, these last few years, that's been really tough. Um the, the upside, you know, I've been working in the, the outreach, uh, non-light outreach for, you know, for 10 years. Um, and it, there's just so many options now. Every major manufacturer, you know, Uh, has some non-lead option on the market every major cartridge has something loaded you don't have to be a hand loader yourself anymore um and it just gets better every year um so lots of good options out there which is great for us shooters right it it gives us the ability to you know play with different things find out what my rifle likes um and that's really important um to to get something that's you know going to work in your gun um but yeah partners um you know uh, certainly the, the North American non-led partnership is uh, fantastic. You know, their their whole goal is, hey, if we're going to talk about this, it needs to come from hunters. It needs to come from hunting groups. Um, and that's what that, that partnership is all about is, um, you know, hunting organizations and hunting hunters themselves saying, hey, if if I'm going to say, you know, that I'm a conservation hunter, that I care about the ecosystem and the animals and the wildlife that, that you know, matter to me so much, you know, I, I've got to be able to, um, you know, make the switch too, um, so that I'm not, it's not the target species is not the only thing I care about. I care about everything that's out there. And I certainly don't want a secondary kill. Um, You know, I pull my trigger. I want one animal down. I don't want to find out later that I killed two bald bald eagles because I left a gut pile that was full of lead fragments. That's not who I am as a hunter. Um, So that partnership is great. Um, Institute for Wildlife Studies, they've also done uh, quite a bit, uh, hunting lead free, um, lots of us, um, you know, kind of all over the, all over the, especially the Western U S right now that are, you know, involved in this outreach and this education to, to help us get to that point where, um, you know, it's just, it's an easy choice for, for, for folks to make. Um, but if you, if you haven't gotten into this, it's not such an easy thing. How do I make that choice? You know, what's the information out there? Um, so a couple of good resources, um, there's a website, uh, hunting with um, that's just a really good clearinghouse of just basic information about non-led ammunition, um, some sort of why and how how to make that switch. Um, and then if you're an organization uh, looking to get more into this, the the North American Non-Led Partnership is great. Um, Chris Parrish and, and Leland Brown there, um, who I've worked with for years, um, you know, just great, great guys that uh, just want to help move you along. So, and yeah. You know, Jonathan. If you if you want to dive into this deep, um, those are the guys uh, for sure. Um, they really really know their stuff. We've been doing this for a long time, and, and they're fantastic uh, um, speakers on this. So.
0: Yeah, Chris Parrish has is, is been a friend of mine for many many years, and and uh, uh, him and him and another uh, person finally convinced me years ago to, to switch to non lead ammunition. And and I was a little sticker shock surprised when I, when I first went to buy the boxes, this was, you know, uh, many, many years ago, but, uh, it was very effective. And, and I can tell you that I still have, I think, I still think I have two bullets from that original box. And so far I think I've shot five elk with that same box. And so I go out every year. I, I, go to zero my gun and, and, uh, I shoot it just to test where the zero is on it. It's exactly where I left it last year. And so it only takes me about two bullets every year to, to go out and, and try and shoot an elk. So when I get drawn
1: for tags, but, um, well, so, And to that point, um, you know, not only do we have more, uh, options on the table, but, uh, you know, you said that sticker shock uh, that has kind of gone away too, as, as that has changed. So, um, certainly, you know, there's going to be some bottom shelf stuff that's just super cheap and you'll never get past that on, on the lead side. But, um, when you're comparing apples to apples, you know, um, a a premium hunting bullet is, is basically the same price, whether it's lead or non-lead at this point, um, you know, you look at Hornady's, uh, loads, you know, their GMX and their, their, uh, uh eldx like it's it's the same price for that box it doesn't matter what it's loaded with um so yeah. that that price sticker shock has come down too which is yeah
0: is and, I, and i've spent a little bit of time experimenting as well with uh some non-lead um options uh, aside from just steel with uh shooting birds and and things like that which has been mm-hmm. very 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 impressed with with the capabilities there too but so all right, so now we, we've kind of talked about what the problem is and, and how we've gotten here. And Dan's come in and shown all these guys, okay, here's how you're going to shoot them. Here's what you're going to shoot them with. We kind of got there. So now we're here at the hunt, and we have 12 guys with probably an and army gals. of volunteers. <laughs> and gals. And gals. And gals. Mm-hmm. So you got, you got 12 color, volunteer colors and their entire tribe of, of volunteers behind them. Um, how successful was it?
2: So there were total five. So we had 12 opportunities to get bison, and this was our pilot year because this is the first time this is ever that bison have ever been called in the National Park Service. Elk have been called in some parks. A lot of eyes on us just because we're Grand Canyon. Um, We got five. Yeah. So, So.
0: What, what did, I mean, I know I, I read some reports that that I think were a little short-sighted when, you know, they were like, oh, it was a giant failure and, and all that stuff. I, I, I hesitate to, to bring that up because the the only thing that, uh, I would say, especially for, for folks who, you know, maybe on the outside looking in again, as you said, this was a pilot year, so this was kind of a learning, you know, curve to, to get over. Um, it isn't just straight bison hunting. It isn't, there's a lot of challenges that go into this, um, particularly with, you know, the bison themselves, the terrain you're in, a, a number of different factors. And, and it's not like bison hunting is a sure thing where you just walk out into a field and go, oh, there's, there's the big brown lump, shoot that one. Um, I'm, the guys in the 1800s made it look pretty easy by <laughs> comparison to today's standards. But, um, you know, what were kind of some of the learning aspects that, that you, you picked up during this first pilot year?
2: Well, first, I wanted to ask the failure question because I think it's important to keep in mind what our goal was. We have two different types of bison reduction. One is we're live capturing bison and transferring them to tribes who are bison tribes, so they have their own herds. And the second is this lethal cull. And lethal culling, the main goal was not to shoot as many bison as possible. The main goal was to make the park less safe, so, that bison wander more widely across the Kaibab Plateau and there's more opportunities for hunters to reduce the herd on the other side of the boundary, yeah. right? Right. So, we learned a lot about that. For one thing, uh, a lot of what we did didn't move the bison. Uh, we came back, there's at least one week where we shot three bison pretty much in the same spot, <laughs> right? So, but we learned a ton and we modified our operation almost every week based on what we were learning. And it depended a little bit on what group we were working with and what the volunteers were up for and their own experience level. Because again, as Dan said, we had people from all over the country. Yeah. Um, and some of them were, you know, they were ready to camp out overnight and be there in the morning. And there were some who were like, I'm gonna sleep in and I'll, I'll get out there at 10. You know, and because they're volunteers, there's a limit to how much we're gonna make them push things. Sure. Um, and so we did learn a lot, I think. On that, Um, I also think that the bison on the Kaibab Plateau are, they're hunted all the time. They know, they act like hunted animals, right? Uh, In fact, I believe your friend had dubbed them as a ninja bison. So because they could walk through the forest and you would see one of them through a crack and there'd be 40 of them and you would have just walked through there and it's down trees everywhere and there wouldn't be a single crack They wouldn't step on a single twig, right? And so, like, if we hadn't had the tools we had with GPS and um, airplane support and things, we we would have had a much harder time finding the bison. And the other thing that was difficult is we had a very narrow category of bison that we were willing to shoot based on our reduction goals, and those were young females. And honestly, when you're on a big group of bison – sometimes you don't get the shot at the bison you want right Right. um and and especially when they would catch wind of you they would move so fast and they'd the the lead cow would just circle them all up and they would just start moving and they'd be out of there and so there wasn't always the opportunity or the animal present that they needed to shoot that doesn't mean they couldn't have shot an animal but it wasn't the target animal
0: right and and i think a lot of people are you know May not know this, but but bison herds are actually matriarchal in yeah. in their their structure. Yes. Um, so the the females play a, a much more important role to, to the herd dynamics than than the males do.
2: Yes, and those females were really sharp. And the other thing I think is, you know, most people think of bison. They think about the bison they see on vacation when they're driving through meadows. So obviously, if you if you're in Yellowstone or Badlands, like those bison have no threats. That you can go right up to them. And in Little Park, which is that main entrance road from the park, bison have the same experience. And we that's not an area we were going to shoot in because we do not want to shoot in front of the public and have to deal with all the issues that up, come up because it's a sensitive thing and not everybody wants to see that. But that's the one area where bison on the Kaibab Plateau will let people get close to them. Sure. Pretty much anywhere else they won't. But we were doing this in the fall. So they the fall is when... What I call the pioneering phase for bison—that's so when we have the widest movement of bison um, on the Kaibab Plateau. Out of all the other times of year, it's post, and um, so they're they're much more widely spread and in smaller groups, which is more difficult than when you have you know 200 sitting in a meadow. And uh, again, um, our bison just are wily. They are used to being shot at. They know exactly what a hunter looks like and smells like um and you know i think they get a lot of scouting from hunting groups on the park who are who are hunting on the boundary and so yeah i mean the minute they would catch a whiff it was amazing how fast they would move um they were in some really deep timber and some really steep little canyons um and, and often in big patches of Mexican (laughs) locusts. You wouldn't think they'd like it because of the thorns, but they would sit in the middle of these just huge patches of Mexican locusts. And so it'd be hard to, like, you'd see an ear, you know, or a tail (laughs) twitching, but you couldn't see the whole animal. Um,
0: Yeah, I I can certainly vouch for the uh, the ninja bison comment. Um, (laughs) I've been out there several times and had cows and calves walk up, you know, Within close proximity to me, to me, out there, and not realizing they're there until I just kind of like look over and there's this giant brown thing staring at me, <laughs> and kind of yeah. be like, "Wow, okay." Um, you know, I'm usually out there trying to be quiet myself, move through, looking for for grouse and squirrels and things like that, and all of a sudden, you, yeah, you turn around, there's a you know thousand pound animal looking at you. So,
2: yeah, to look at them, you wouldn't think they'd be able to move that quietly, right? But they are, and. You know, again, when we talk about the difference between our bison and other bison, a lot of bison are in plains. And when you talk to other people who manage herds, you're like, bison never go and up and you know they don't climb, they don't go in the forest. Well, that's not true of Kaibab Plateau bison. We have in the winter, they go up a thousand five hundred feet below the rim, and you know, there's a lot of forests there, and they are forests. They spend a lot of time in the forests, and they're very agile in that terrain—far more agile than we are. Um, yeah, despite their huge size. So we did learn a lot. I think we we modified and very much on our feet, and we worked with our partners with Game and Fish to, because there were sideboards that they had put on us too, to try and work so that we everybody was comfortable with our changes, and I think they were. Also, uh, very happy with our ability to learn and adjust as we went. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we learned a lot. I think um, on how to work, and I think we got more successful as time went on as well.
0: Sure. Now, are are you looking t- ahead towards another one this year, or?
2: So this year we are not. Um, the population. So the goal for the reduction is to get the population below two hundred. The annual population estimate this year is 216, give or take, right? About 187 to 313 on either side of that. Um, The leadership of the park has decided that this year we will just do a live capture um, and removal. And then, you know, I don't really, I I think it's still on the table, lethal culling. I don't know. It's sort of a year-to-year plan, and I sort of wait for the management to, and the leadership at this park to weigh all the pros and cons and everything they've got going on and and make that decision.
0: So Um, so you've been able to actually move um, some of those bison to some tribal lands then? Yes.
2: Yeah. We've moved um, bison to six different tribes. Uh, Let me see if I can pull up our total number that we've moved um, because, uh, let me just pull up my stats, which I thought I had up, but course i don't that would be too easy right um yeah so we have moved a lot of our uh we've got six different tribes some of them in oklahoma south dakota uh new mexico one of the things that's interesting about bison is some states consider them wildlife and some states consider them livestock so moving across state boundaries is tricky um, and we've had to uh, do a lot of negotiations <laughs> with states with between veterinarians. So we have um, shipped 124 bison. Uh, this, the tribes that have received them are the Quapaw Nation, the Prairie Band Potawatomi, the Flandreau Santee Sioux Tribe, the Santee Sioux, the Modoc Nation, and the Cherokee Nation. Um, and interestingly, I think last year, the amount of bison that were harvested off of the park was equal to the number that we live captured and removed. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of fun. But in total, um, over the last four years, 292 bison have been removed from this herd. And a lot of them have been pregnant animals. And so that's helped us get to our our lower numbers because we're not even having the same number of calves born every year as we normally would. And that's both... Our, both our removal, lethal culling, live removal, and harvest um, numbers. So.
0: Sure. Talk to me a little bit about catching a bison. I mean, do you just send Dan out there to go, like, wrestle them down to the ground in hot time?
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, water, as you probably know, is the the limiting factor for all wildlife in uh, Arizona, right? So right. mostly we, we have a capture pen, and we put water in it, and they come. <laughs> right. And then we we kind of do that for a couple months, and then we shut the gates on them. Okay. And then we do use uh, low stress handling to move them through a pen and shoots. You know, we take biological data, we weigh them. Some of them we put call tracking collars on. We generally we have to test for some diseases before we can ship them. Um, we've done our gotten our genetic information from that. You know to samples off of them. Uh, We usually pull blood. We age and sex them. Um, So we get a lot of other useful information out of them. And then we primarily really big bulls or old matriarchs, we either collar and kick loose or just kick loose because we really want to maintain the social structure that the bison have. And then with really big old bull bison, they're difficult to to transport i mean they've they've opened the can- the lid off of livestock trailers with their horns before or they just won't leave you know they'll sit there for five days and they won't back out of the trailer and you have to put the animal down so we're looking at moving a lot of the one to two to three year olds mostly yeah. um and so yeah we um we run them through again and a lot of it is is low stress handling and with bison if they see you if you walk very slowly towards them and kind of keep your eye on them, what they'll do is they'll squeeze past you. So if you that you get them to move forward by walking at them on catwalks, okay. and then we put them in a squeeze chute, and then we sort them sort of by by weight class into holding pens, and then they get loaded up. So the Intertribal Buffalo Council or ITBC partners with us, and they bring truckers up to. Um, get the bison and that's how how the tribe it's decided which tribes get these bison is they itbc puts out a call for any partners that have what they call excess bison and and then people say hey i want different tribes say hey i want them and this is how many i want and then itbc decides which tribes get them so then they bring up their trucks and then we load them based on the weight and we pack them in pretty good because if you're packed in really good mm-hmm. and they can't move they don't damage each other very much Right. Because um, that's the biggest thing is you want healthy animals. And I think, to my knowledge, we've only ever had one die, one or two die post-transport. Um, oh, that's
0: so really that's good. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, I have kind of a burning question in my mind right now. Um, what do you think is the most effective round for
1: bison <laughs> with the non-lead stuff? <laughs> Ooh. That, that's, the, that's like, the first question everybody, you know, asked on, uh, <laughs> when we were doing the training. Um, you know, and, and it's it's like a lot of hunting, right? Um, uh, it comes down to a couple of things. Certainly, you want to have, you know, enough energy at the end of that shot to do the job. Um, so, so starting there, um, that's what matters. Having said that, there's a lot of rifles and cartridges that can accomplish that, um, especially if you're, you know, for what we were looking at <clears throat> Like Miranda was saying, you know, it was a lot of cows, so they're still big, but they're not, you know, they're not these massive, massive males. Um, so for us, you know, just about, you know, most, most common rifles were, would still be quite capable of that. Um, what we uh, in the Park Service tend to use is uh, a 300 Win Mag, um, but, you know, that's... that's not to say that that is the only option or that that's the best option. Um, it just seems to be, um, a a great option for us. Um, when it comes to ammunition, um, again, and this is what I tell everybody, that's the rifle. Um, you know, the rifle is going to choose what ammunition is really best for you there. And and I say that, um, with the sort of caveat that, um, most of the non-lead ammunition, um, being put out by all the different manufacturers, um, in those sort of, you know that, this type of stuff. It's basically operate in the same way. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're shooting a Barnes bullet, a, a you know Federal Trophy Copper, um, you know Hornady's GMX um, uh, or, or the Hornady's new round. Um, you know they're really it's a it's a monolithic bullet, and it the tip opens up. Uh, it, you know, sort of opens the the nose opens up, and that's that's where you get that expansion there. Um, so really most of them are going to operate the same way. So, um, if you've got that, then it just comes down to trying these different things, try some different grain weights, um, you know, try different manufacturers, different, you know, they're all loading their powders differently. Um, figure out what your rifle likes because, and, and that will honestly be different, you know, rifle to rifle. Um, I've got a, uh, <clears throat> my Tika, um, you know, just loves Hornady's, uh, super uh, around with the GMX in it. And in the same, same cartridge, same caliber, my Remington likes, uh, uh, the Nosler E-tip, um, you know, go figure, right. Um, it's, it's the same, the same thing, but, but one rifle, I'm just going to get better groups. Um, and since I, you know, I trust that the terminal performance is going to be very similar for those. Um, I can go with whatever my rifle likes, what, what, you know, so that I can be confident in that, that shot because I know where it's going to hit every single time from that rifle. So sure yeah
0: I've often wondered you know I've thought about if I ever got a bison tag um you know kind of what that experience would be like and how what I would like it to be i almost I almost kind of feel like i'd I'd want a modern rifle but I'd want it shooting like one of the old bison cartridges like a forty five seventy forty five ninety you know something like that just just for that kind of nostalgic experience of it but
1: right Yeah. But I mean, you know, the modern rifles, like you're saying, they're going to do the job. Um, and it's more about shot placement than it is about what rifle you're using. Um, you know, I mean, there's plenty of folks that are, you could, you could, you know, feasibly put these down with 30-06, you know, 308, if you're in the right place. Um, you know, and again, distance matters, right? I mean, what, what is that projectile doing at a particular distance? You can't just, you know, be slinging things out there at 600 yards. Um, know 700 yards and expect that bullet to to do the same thing that it's doing at 150 yards um but as long as you know what that bullet is going to do at those distances um and you're putting in the right spot um these these modern rifles with these you know these modern bullets they're going to do the job so yep
0: yeah i i mean i a bison obviously is is probably the classic definition of the broad side of a barn you know (laughs) it's it's kind of hard to miss but at the (laughs) same time yeah on a bison you know Pretty specific about where you want that bullet placement to be, and yeah, um, to be effective with it.
1: It's, you it's really need to be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, Miranda. Yeah. It, it's almost worse that it's that big because it gives you this false sense of, I have this huge target. In front I can't of me. miss. <laughs> yeah. I can't miss. Well, you're right. You probably won't miss, but are you going to hit anything that actually matters? Um, so, uh, you know, making sure that you're putting that bullet right where it needs to be, where the vitals are, not just this huge, massive, you know, hunk of muscle in the back that, that, you know, now you've just wounded an animal. And that's not what any of us want. So. Or,
2: you know, they have such huge gut area. That if you, I mean, if you hit that, you're not going to be able to track the animal. And that, I mean, that animal will eventually probably die of some sort of infection, but you're never going to be able to find it and get that second shot in. Um, And because there's nothing comes out if you hit, they have, you know, they have massive stomachs. (laughs) And that whole gut area is just, I mean, you're essentially you're hitting hay, right? Like, and so if you hit an animal there, yeah, you've just it's a wasted shot. And so shot placement is huge. I think the other thing that we found really helped was having bipods because you don't, your window is so fast. You don't have time to like lay down and, you know, get your shot set up. So if you can just, if you, the more on the go, you can be with your setup, the better. Right.
0: Well, very cool guys. I've, I've learned a ton today. Is there anything else like folks should know about the, the, culling program or or what's gone on or
2: um well i guess you know it's been a success i think i think overall the reduction has been a success again we've only been reducing the herd for three years we've tried a couple different methods and we're on target to meet our goals which means to you know keep your ears out because there will we will be planning for what long-term management looks like um and we will be looking for public input on that and so Uh, You know, keep your eyes and ears tuned for that. Um, Yeah. And then I would also say a lot of people get wrapped around the axle about, are they called bison or buffalo? Just let it go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, so the tribes, it's very important to them to call them buffalo. Taxonomically, they're bison if you're a taxonomist and a scientist. But if you're talking about buffalo or bison and you're in North America, we all know what you're talking about. Right. Right? It doesn't matter. Sure. So anyway... (laughs) 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 Party
0: shot. <laughs> 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 well, thank you, Dan and Miranda. I really appreciate having you guys on today. Um, this was super informative to me. Hopefully it was for you out there in, in podcast listener world. Um, anyway, uh, join me again for another episode here in, uh, in a couple weeks. Stay tuned.